You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or Bible app, grab that and let's go to the book of Ephesians together. Ephesians chapter 3 will be our passage for the morning. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible this morning. There are hardback uh, Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. Pick one up now. Pick one up on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you. No strings attached. Just start reading that Bible and see what happens in your life. And if you're not very familiar with the Bible, we're going to put the passage that we're studying today on the screen so you can follow along with us. If you are willing and able, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We do this because we really believe these are God's words. And so we stand out of reverence and eagerness. We're ready to hear from Him. So listen carefully to these words. I want to read Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, you, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. For several weeks now, we have been looking at the book of Ephesians. And this book, really better than any other book of the Bible, explains what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of this letter, known as Ephesians, the purpose is identity formation. Paul, the author of this book, accomplishes that purpose, that goal of identity formation by using this phrase, in Christ, again and again and again, some 30 times in the letter. He refers to us believers as being in Christ, shorthand for in relationship with Jesus Christ. That is our new and true identity. Now we come today in our study to a major transition point in the letter. You might have noticed that as I was reading because the passage sort of sounds like the end of something, right? It ends with the word amen. Sounds like the end, and it is the end. Not of the letter as a whole, but of the first main part of the letter. The first three chapters of Ephesians is heavy on theology. The final three chapters will be heavy on practical matters. Or we could say it like this. The first three chapters, one to three, are about identity, who we are in Christ. Chapters four to six will be about our responsibilities, how we live out this new identity. And Paul is going to conclude this first main part of the letter the same way he opened it, with prayer and praise. But before he does so, at the beginning of chapter 3, and I'm just going to summarize for you the very beginning of chapter 3. We're going to focus on the second part of the chapter. At the beginning of chapter 3, he goes back 
to the subject he expounded in the passage we studied last week. The end of chapter 2. He talks again about the unity of the church. See, the gospel has not only made you, believer, a new creation, but the gospel has also created a new kind of community, a new society that is free from discrimination, free from division. One of our core values here at Faith Church is authentic community. Authentic community. And here's the way we define or summarize that. We believe that the gospel unites people like no other power in the world. It brings together people of different genders, ethnicities, ages, classes, and life experiences. It brings deep-seated, not superficial relationships that are characterized by truth and love. Or as Paul himself put it at the end of chapter 2, the passage from last week. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. The blood of Christ that binds us as brothers and sisters, that blood is more precious, more powerful than the blood the skin colors, the languages, the political allegiances, the preferences that may divide. A new kind of community. And this is a theological reality. It's real. It's something Christ has indeed created for us. Our calling is to maintain the unity He's created. And so we ended last week by talking about a theology of embrace. See, if this unity is real... Christ has already created it and we are called to maintain it, then that means we must learn to forgive and embrace each other. So we talked last week about what that means, a theology of embrace. And I tried to help you see that when you are unforgiving, when I am unforgiving, it is because we exclude our enemy, whoever the enemy is, we exclude our enemy from the community of humanity. Meaning we treat them as subhuman monsters. And we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners, meaning we forget. We forget that once we were dead in our sin. We were sinful to the core, sinful from the crib. See, when you and I, when we have unforgiving hearts, it is because deep down somewhere we have this belief, expressed or unexpressed, that our enemy doesn't really deserve the cross. And we don't really need it. Now what I didn't say last week is this. If we will follow our grudges, then likely we will find the idols of our heart. If we will follow our grudges, then likely we will find the idols of our hearts. And here's what I mean. Think about a person that you're having a hard time forgiving. Now, pinpoint what exactly it was that they did. Why do you have that grudge? Why are you having such a hard time forgiving them? If you can pinpoint that, it will lead you to the idol of your heart. Here's an example. 
if it's someone in your life who verbally attacked you, they just tore you down, then likely your idol is your own sense of confidence, your own sense of self-importance. That's what you've been chasing. That's what you've been cherishing. They hit you where it hurts the most, and that's why you can't forgive them. Or if the person you can't forgive is someone who swooped in and took that job, that promotion that should have been yours, then likely your idol is your work or your money. If that person you can't forgive is someone who did something to your spouse or your child, then likely your idol is your family. See, if we, if we follow our grudges... Eventually, they will lead us to the idols of our hearts. And then, when we find those idols, we must surrender them to God. In prayer. We must surrender them in prayer. That's what Paul's going to do today. He's going to lead us in a time of prayer. He's going to come back to the same way he started the letter. Prayer and praise. Prayer and praise. And just like that first time he voiced his prayer, as he voices this prayer today, there's much we can learn and much we can apply in this passage. I want us to notice three things in particular. First, Paul's posture, how he prays. There's something for us there. Second, the prayer itself, what he prays. And third and finally, Paul's praise. The way he ends his prayer and the way he ends this first main part of the letter. So let's look at the first one. Paul's posture. Now though I've divided this sermon into three parts that all seem to be focused around Paul, I need to clarify that actually what we're going to learn today, we're going to learn important things about God. The one thing I want us to do together today, if nothing else, is to think greatly about the greatness of God. That's the way a Puritan writer named John Owen put it long, long ago. We should think greatly about the greatness of God. Now, I'm keenly aware that a pastor talking about the greatness of God is sort of like an insect trying to carry a bale of cotton. Or like a man trying to get his arms around the ocean. So I'm keenly aware of my limitations this morning. I'm going to do the best I can and rely on the Holy Spirit to pick up everywhere where I am weak. But I want us to think greatly about the greatness of God. Look here where Paul is in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul is on his knees. Now, this is, this is the Apostle Paul. The greatest missionary who ever lived met the risen Jesus, influencer, mega influencer of his day, and he's on his knees. He's kneeling. He's kneeling as an act of submission. That's why we kneel. We kneel to show that we are submissive to God, when we kneel, we sink low in a good way. In a good way. See, Paul understands, and he wants us to understand, that we serve the transcendent God. 
the transcendent God. Now, don't be put off by this word transcendence. To transcend simply means to rise above or to be above. The Bible teaches us that God is nearer than we can imagine. Believer, God is nearer than your own thoughts. He's nearer than your own breath. And at the same time, the Bible teaches us that God is higher. He's higher than anything we can imagine. Not in a geographical or astronomical sense being removed. No, higher meaning he's set apart from his creation. See, we, we tend to establish like a hierarchy. Way down here at the bottom would be the amoeba, the single-celled organism, right? And then toward the top would be humanity, angels, maybe archangels. And then at the very tip top, there's God, right? And that's our, our hierarchy, our pyramid. But truthfully... God transcends the whole pyramid. There is an infinite gap between God and the amoeba, and there is an infinite gap between God and the archangel, because God is the creator. He's the creator. As Paul says here, he's the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Parents, when you find out you're going to have a baby, what do you do? You name the baby, right? It's your right as a parent. You name your child. God is the one who names everyone and everything. He is the creator of all. So he transcends the whole pyramid. It's not that he's at the top of this hierarchy of creatures. No, no, no. God is the one and only creator. He transcends it all. Here's another way I could say it to help you get this idea of the transcendent God. Words. Words matter, don't they? Words matter. Sometimes in our house, we play board games. And one of the board games we play from time to time is Scrabble. Any Scrabble fans out there? Okay, like two of you. Good. <laughs> so sometimes we play Scrabble, but we put, we're a little competitive, so we put a little Thornton twist on it. So when we play Scrabble, we bring this big hardback dictionary to the table. And it sits there the whole time we play. And if someone builds a word that makes the rest of us a little suspicious, we begin to think, you know, I'm not sure that's a real word. We consult the dictionary. And if it is a real word, then the game continues. Everything is fine. And if it's not a real word, then we smack the culprit with the dictionary vigorously and so at once we build our vocabularies and our tolerance for pain you see you can build some high point words in scrabble right if you're good at it you can build some high point words but none should be as high point as the word god it is the heaviest word in the english language that's the way a.w tozer put it in his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy. It's a very famous part from the book, outside the Bible, probably one of the most influential things I've ever read. Here's what Tozer says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now just let that sink in for a second. 
what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. Well, that's true of our day, isn't it? Without doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. And the weightiest word in any language is its word for God. The transcendent God. See, to understand the transcendent God is to know something about our own creatureliness, our weakness. We cannot be truly strong until we understand our lowliness, our weakness, and God's high aboveness, His transcendence. That's the first thing we learn from Paul's posture. Now, from Paul's prayer itself, we can learn other things about this God who loves us and who we're called to serve. Look at verse 16. As he's on his knees... Praying to the Father, Paul prays for this, that according to the riches of His glory, God's glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So on his knees, the first thing Paul prays for is power. Power for believers. The very power of God. Paul prays for this because he knows that not only is God transcendent, God is omnipotent. Now again, don't be put off by the word. Omni means all. Potent means power or powerful. So God has all the power. In fact, God has all the power there is. Now just think about that for a second. And think about what follows from that. God has all the power there is. That means that wherever we see power, God must be the source of it. He is the source of the power of nature. The source of the power of nations. The source of the power of the human intellect. The source of the power of governments. Though sometimes they abuse that power. Just like we can abuse our own intellects. 
God is the source of all power, it also means this. It means that when God gives his power to us, just as Paul is praying for here, when God gives his power to us, he doesn't actually give it away. He gives without giving away. Now that's, that's hard to wrap our minds around because if I have 10 bucks and I give you one, I have given it away, right? So I now have a lesser amount. But that's not the way it works with God because he has all the power there is. His power never lessens. So he gives to us, but without losing anything. So maybe the best way to say it is, God possesses all power, and he allows us to access some of his power. How amazing is that? That through the Holy Spirit who lives within us, believers, we have the very power of God? Now, maybe this sounds a little abstract for you. Let me help you see the concreteness of it. Each one of us has times in our life where we're just, we're down. We're in this place of despair, of darkness, and we begin to have thoughts like this. What I'm going through in life is just too hard. It's too hard for me. It's too hard even for God. But listen to me. The next time you have that thought, you must see it's not true. It can't be true. It can't be true because God has all the power there is. And that means that words like hard and easy, they don't apply to him. See, if I say this weight is heavy and this weight is light, it's based on my assessment of the weight and my assessment of my own strength, right? Or my own power. But God has all the power there is. So there is no heavy and there is no light. There is no hard. There is no easy. His power is effortless power. And you, believer, you have access to that power. Whatever you're going through in your life, it's not too hard. Because God, the omnipotent God, is with you. Remember as well that this is a personal God. His power is personal. He comes to you in your time of need. Important people, really, really important people, they're not very accessible. Have you noticed this? A really important person, you can't just interrupt him or her whenever you want, just disturb their day. That's not how it works. The governor of Florida, if he's asleep at night, middle of the night, and his wife wakes him and asks for a glass of water, you know what he's going to say? Probably the same thing you and I are going to say. Get it yourself. Right? Get it yourself. But if his daughter, if his little girl comes to him in the middle of the night, can I have a glass of water? Of course he's going to get it for her. Of course he is because to her, he's not Governor DeSantis. He's daddy. And that changes everything. This omnipotent God, believer, he's your father. You are his child. That's the sort of access you have to him and to his power that he provides. 
Now, Paul keeps praying. There's one other thing I want you to see in his prayer here. We've learned something of the transcendent God, the omnipotent God, and also here in verses 17 and 18, the loving God. He prays so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So Paul moves from praying for a supply of power to an experience of love. He wants us, believers, to experience God's love deep down in our hearts. In fact, he uses two metaphors here. Do you catch them? Grounded, rooted, and grounded in love. It's an agricultural metaphor and a construction metaphor. If you are a tree... Your roots must go deep down into the love of God. If you are a building, your foundation must be the love of God. The love of God is your firm foundation. It is your firm foundation, your identity and your security. It never changes. It's the love of Christ himself. You know, the Bible teaches us that God is love. Have you ever thought about exactly what that means? God is love. It's not a definition. It would be problematic for us to assert that God is love. Therefore, all love must be God. Anything that goes by the name love must have God's stamp of approval. That would be problematic. God is love is not a definition. When the Bible says God is love, it means the same thing you and I mean when we say Sam is kindness itself. Sam is kindness itself. What do we mean? We don't mean that Sam and kindness are to be equated, that they're identical. We mean that Sam has kindness written all over him. Everything he does is kind. When the Bible says that God is love, it means that everything God does is loving. Now that matters for you and for me. Because it means that everything God does, His action toward you, even His thoughts about you, they're always loving. When God thinks about you, all of His thoughts are loving thoughts. Now that's not like us, is it? We think about people lovingly, but then they hurt us, and our thoughts change. We think about them in other ways, but God is not fickle. God is not volatile like that. When he thinks about you, his thoughts are loving. It also means that we must look to God to learn how to love. If all of God's thoughts and actions are loving, then we must look to Him if we're going to learn how to love others. God shows us love supremely by sending and sacrificing His own Son for us in our place for our sins. So you see, this great and powerful God that we serve is also a God of love. This is such a hopeful thing. Faith Church, this is a hopeful thing for us right now. 
on this day, which is for us a bittersweet day, right? It's a bittersweet day because we're sending out this morning not one, but two of our staff members. Logan and Sarah Hall. Sarah, who's been here virtually her whole life. Logan, who's been here only a couple of years, but has, a, has had a great impact in those couple of years. And he has a nice beard. And so it is a bittersweet day for us, and there has to be so much uncertainty with that. There are so many unknowns. How do we know that Logan and Sarah are going to be okay in this new chapter of ministry? How do we know that Faith Church is going to be okay in our next chapter of ministry? We know because God has all the power there is, and because He is loving, He is with them. He is with us. And so really in light of all of this, there's only one fitting response, and it's the way that Paul concludes his prayer. He concludes with praise. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul ends his prayer with a doxology. A doxology is an ascription of praise. It comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory. To him be glory. To God be glory. You remember at the very beginning when I told you the first three chapters of Ephesians are heavy on the theology? Theology always leads to doxology. Studying God, it should move us to celebrate God, who He is and all that He has done for us. In light of what we know about God, after these last several weeks of studying Ephesians, in light of who we are in Christ, there is only one fitting response, and that is praise. Praise God. Think greatly of the greatness of God that Puritan writer John Owen said long ago. There was another Puritan writer named Thomas Watson, and he said, praising this great God is one of the highest actions. When we pray, we act as men, Watson said. When we praise, we act as angels. So today we're going to close after just a couple of moments of reflection on the word preached, we're going to close with praise. We've got a final song to sing. We're going to join the choir of heaven. We're going to join the Apostle Paul. And we're going to say together, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.